Thessalonians chapter 5, we'll be doing verses 12 to 18. This is going to be a non-normal sermon because they say in seminary that you're supposed to preach a sermon about one thing. One thing, right? Luke did a really good job of that. I think, was it last week he preached? It was like a little one thing sermon. He's good at those. And um, the problem is, is that we're at the like concluding remarks where Paul says like 17 things in 17 succeeding phrases that don't appear to be related. It's like when you leave your kid at home for like three days the first time and you're like, you're walking out there, you're like, lock the door when I leave and you've got to feed the pets and make sure your younger sister doesn't starve. And it's like all these seemingly unrelated things and that doesn't make for a very good one thing sermon. So there it is. We're just going to have to deal with it, okay? Um, all right, here's, here we go. You ready? Verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened, disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other, and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Um, you can, you can sort of imagine a, um, uh, somebody getting ready to, to, uh, have a baby, hopefully with their spouse, and, um, they like redo all the reading. They're like, oh, this is really cool. And then they have the baby and then their spouse, like, you know, I don't know, five months in is like, hey, can you feed the baby? And the guy's like, oh yeah, feeding the baby. That, there's a lot to know about that, like packets or subscription services. And there's so much more than there used to be about this. And do we like do self-weaning or what? Is it all— And she's like, no, I just need you to stuff food in the little brisket's face so it doesn't die because I'm so tired. I feel like I'm about to hallucinate. And he's like, but— I'm actually reading the book on it right now, and it's really good. It's like, and my hallucinations are increasingly including weapons and acts of violence, right? Like, you can't—it's not helpful. There's all kinds of things in the world that it's really good to know about. When I say that being focused on the practical things that we have to do, I am not in any way trying to disparage learning, right? When I say theology is no good without obedience— and theology thought about and utilized in the wrong way can sometimes harm obedience. I'm not in any way disparaging theology. I love research and thinking and so on, but when we get to the end of this book, Paul's like, listen, we just did like four and a half chapters of God's love for you, what he's done, how he's done it, what that means, who you are in him, all of that. Now listen, there's some stuff you've got to do or you're just not Christians. Like you, there's, there's certain things that make up what it means to be a believer. There are necessary implications of what it means to belong to Jesus. And you have to do them. And you have to do them with each other. And you have to help get each other to do them. And they are incredibly important if you're going to do together what we're all called to do in Christ together. And it's time to get really practical. And y'all, we need to do this stuff. Right? So we get to the end— Whatever we think about in terms of the theology of everything, God's will for us, it says in here, it, sa it says all these things we do, it says, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, that is, you have put your trust in Christ in his death and resurrection to forgive you of your sins, for him to give you the promised work of regeneration, the filling of his spirit, the addition to the body of Christ, all these things. 
right? You're in Christ. God's will for you in Christ includes these things. There's no way around that, right? And all that he's talked about in the earlier chapters about what God has done for us in Christ is meant to fuel our desire and our will to do these things, okay? Now, there's, um, there's five of them in this section, but we're, we're just going to do three of them today. My phone should be silenced for sermons. It's terrible. Um, who would call me right now? Yeah, um, so— Tony Dolliger. Okay, so um, there's three of them. To recognize and love your leaders. Two, serve others according to their true needs. And three, deliver consistency consistently on the fundamentals of godliness. Okay, so the first one is, we're going to look at is to recognize and love your leaders. I'm going to—for most of this passage, I like um, the English Standard Version's translation, because I think it's more literal, and, and in this case, more helpful. So I'm going to read that, so the wording will be a little bit different. Okay, so verses 12 and 13 say this. Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard of, in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Now, it is good to recognize the work and to love everybody who is over you in anything. The Bible has a very strong ethic of respect towards authority because authority um, always bears responsibility on your behalf. And when it's done nobly is a weight people bear for you. We all kind of, when you're young, you want to be in charge of stuff. And then when you're middle-aged, you like get in charge of some things and you're like, this is a lot of work. And then when you're older, you're like, when can I retire from being in charge of things? Okay, it's not fun. It's not glamorous. It's one of the reasons why people are corrupt in it because it's such a drain and a drag that you feel like you ought to get something for it. And people engage in all kinds of different corruptions. It's one of the reasons why leadership is so easily corrupted. Okay, so it's true that people, it's like, it doesn't matter if you don't like, like, I'm really upset with the, um, the Dane County supervisor right now, okay? Like, we have done—I've done—we've done months of work preparing school for, for kids to come. We've, we've changed classrooms. We've reorganized the entire building. We've spent just hundreds of hours of work preparing for a safe educational environment where people—where kids can come in person. And then two days ago, like, a couple—a few days before school starts, they just outlaw school past second grade for everyone, including us. Right? Okay, I'm— I'm very upset with him, as you can—if you can imagine, okay? So are a lot of people who have worked for weeks on this, all right? And I think it's a terrible decision. I'm upset about it, okay? But listen, I also acknowledge that he has a very hard job. He had to make a number of binary decisions that he had to decide one way or another, and it's his job to make those decisions. He can't not make them. And so— Though I, I, I would like to do what they did to John in the video, like at least like throw a bucket. Like I wish I could express myself in some way. I wish I could prevail upon him to change his mind. But at the same time, I, I don't want to do his job. I know it has to be done. I know my life is better for us having a county supervisor, probably. And um, I, I, so I, I believe that some levels of government help my life, perhaps this one. And so I want to— respect him for what he does. I want to acknowledge what he has to do, and I want to respect him for what he does, and to the extent I must love all people, love him. Do you understand? And so even though I'm really upset, I'm not going to try to caricature him or attack him or send a little tweet. I'm just not going to do that, right? Because I want to recognize everybody who has authority over me, because I think that's right in the Lord. However, 
in these verses. This is specifically oriented towards believers in Christ and the family of God and those who are spiritual leaders in the family of God. Okay? There's two markers, at least in here. Respect those who work hard among you. So he's talking to the church. He's like, those who work hard among you, right? So it's, it's within a certain context of the church. And then he says, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. So all of those are references directly to us who are part of the church of Christ. And it's those who are leading in the church of Christ. So these two verses are specifically about that. Now, I realize that the rest of this point is going to sound really self-serving. <laughs> I get that. Okay, so listen. Just pretend you're never going to do any of this stuff for me. Okay? Like, whether you do or not, what matters is, like, a lot of you are going to move. All you young people are going to move, right? Or, or it, Wherever you go, this is true for spiritual leaders everywhere. This is true for your small group leader. And, and for, it's proportionate to the amount to which people hold spiritual authority in your life and are ministering to you. Proportionately, this holds true for them. Do you understand? Okay. Now, there's three things that it says. Well, two things it tells you to do first. It says, one, it says you need to recognize them. Now, some translations say respect. The literal word in the original language is to know. Know your leaders. Right? What it means is to know such that you can acknowledge or understand something about them. Right? Acknowledge your leaders who, and then it gives three characteristics of what they do. One, who toil among you. Actually, I think I have a slide for this. Let's go two slides. Who toil among you. Second, who are— probably the best word is president, but there's a number of political analysts who said, you know, America started going awry when it started pronouncing the head of the executive branch president. They should have kept pronouncing it, as George Washington did, as president. Because that's what the word means. It means president. It just means one who is kind of over the proceedings of something. It doesn't mean the dictatorial force of executive authority, right? But, but it means like president in the sense that um, they are in the place of a guardian. They have a certain amount of authority over you spiritually that you should acknowledge. And it's because they have a whole pile of responsibility for you that they're going to answer for the shepherding of your soul. And they've taken that responsibility and it's a heavy weight. And it's really important. And they, they are between you and the curse. They are between you and the abyss in a way. They, they serve to shepherd you in a way that's really important, and it's not trivial, right? And third, they admonish you in the Lord. Now, admonishment means telling people what they have to hear that they don't want to hear and you don't want to tell them. That's essentially what that means. It's telling people what they need to hear that they don't want to hear and that you don't want to tell them. It's one of the most fundamentally important parts of human existence interpersonally. It is a fundamental part of love, and it is a thing that we most do not actually do well for each other. Most people just have a failure of nerve when it comes to telling people what they need to hear in a way that is loving and kind, but is also truthful and direct. And because we generally don't do it well for each other, though in the next verses it's going to command us to do it, these leaders have to step into that gap and do that work, and nobody wants to do it. The reason they have to do it is because we don't want to, right? And so, listen, that's a lot of work. The work of ministry is a kind of toil. It's hard, long hours. It never ends. It has the responsibility of being a guardian. So it has all the, so it has all the work of being the low-end laborer. It has all the responsibility of being the high-end executive. And then it has all the work of being like the teacher, speaker, statesman. And 
It's not just those three things. Those three things have a multiplying and cumulative effect with each other, making them all harder. Mike Beresford um, had like some kind of heart thing years ago, and he went to the hospital to get checked out. He was a, he'd been a pastor for 20 years or something at that point, and they checked him out. They did the E-E-F-G-H-W-X-Y-Z to him, and they, they figured out he was fine. And so the doctor came in and said, Mike, uh, you're fine. We're gonna, we're gonna release you. He goes, that's great, because I, I really, I mean, I gotta get my sermon ready for, uh, for Sunday. And he's like, wait, 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 you're a pastor? He's like, yeah. He's like, okay, you're not leaving. He was like, why? He's like, because there's two groups of people who die on us. Cops and pastors. We think they're fine, and then they have heart attacks, and they just die, right? There, there are certain roles people play in other people's lives that are extremely stressful, and they take long and large tolls on people. So I, I got back this weekend from a family vacation, and um, we did a lot of driving, and when I got back this week, I studied to admonish you, I tried to solve major institutional issues that involved more than one million dollars. I, um, I ministered to someone whose son died unexpectedly and did a funeral among people that I had, most of whom I had never met, right? And I had to get all that right, and a funeral for a person I had never met. And then um, I counseled, spent time counseling uh, two people who were struggling with significant trauma who had not been able to be helped by counselors. I did some pretty serious marriage counseling stuff. I did a consultant thing on a multi-ethnicity and economic development within a local church thing for this foundation, because they wanted to do a thing on High Point, and they wanted to know what we were doing. God help us if we're a model church in that. And then, and that was like all by Wednesday, right? right. So like, it's a lot, it's a lot of things. It's a lot of different things. They're all coming at once. They're all extremely important. They're key moments in people's lives. And listen, um, it is difficult, thankless, long, gray hair-inducing, heart attack-giving work. And it's very easy to think, well, you know, you chose it. Do your job. Or, like, God will give you grace for it. And that's all true, actually. Like, I think about that all the time. I was like, I know other guys that work just as many hours as me. Right? And most of those guys, when I have private conversations with them, they say, I work hard, but I would never want your job. I was like, that's helpful. <laughs> I talk about the Obama effect of being the senior pastor of— um, of High Point, like, if you remember when President, President Obama became president his first term, he had, like, no gray hairs. And then when he ran for re-election, the second term was, like, everything lower than about here. It was, like, there was, like, a longitudinal thing or latitude. It was, like, everything below here was gray because the job was really hard on him, you know? So what it says to do in this passage is first, the first thing it says to do is to recognize all that. Recognize all that. I remember when I was a college student and my pastors were not doing a very good job I was really frustrated with them not doing a good job because I was like, we're never going to reach the university. We're never going to reach my generation. We're never going to reach young people if you're this bad at your job. And I don't actually think they were doing a great job to this day, but I, I do realize that I did not recognize their toil. I did not recognize the role of them being a guardian over me and others. And I did not recognize how hard it was just to do the work of admonishing you had to do to be a faithful leader day in and day out. And if I just would have recognized that, I would have talked to them differently. I might not have requested anything different, but I would have treated them differently. I would have talked to them differently. I would have, I would have worked in humility differently. The second thing it says to do is it says, therefore, esteem them highly in love. Now the word translated highly esteemed or translated in the NIV, highest, hold them in the quote, highest regard in love. 
That word is only used three times in the entire New Testament. It literally means the very highest regard you could possibly hold somebody in. So the three places the word is used is, the first is in Ephesians 3 where it says, God can do so much more than you can even imagine. Than we can imagine or think in our hearts. So when we pray and when we turn him, it's, um, what he can do is beyond what you can think. That's the word. Be totally beyond all reasonable acknowledgement. Okay? The second time it's used is in 1 Thessalonians 3 when Paul talks about him praying for the church. So he's like, I long for you in the highest regard and pray for you every day. So the Christian leaders or the person who's ministering who may hope to be held in the highest regard, there should be a, there should be a good exchange here, right? You as the shepherd, anybody you shepherd, you should have that highest regard for them. They're a sheep of Christ's own pasture made in the image of God, fighting a great battle, Right? And, um, and then the other is here. So the, the level of highness of regard here is very high. And then thirdly, one of the ways that you can show that is it says right after that, so therefore be at peace with one another. Live in peace with each other. So what makes responsibility easier for people in charge, right? Just ask parents with more than two children, right? If the kids would just shut up, we wouldn't go crazy. Like, honestly, like just— not creating problems when problems don't—Sarah's nodding over there. I see that. Yeah, she's like, yes, I have a lot of children, um, and that would be great. So um, that's a big deal, right? So hold them in the highest esteem and love. Recognize what they do, and living at peace with each other is very helpful. All right, we need to move on. But, but I, I think it's, it's also important to notice that, like, in Corona land, your leaders have to make a lot—are going to be making a lot of decisions— that nobody's going to agree on. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many people have, have said to me, they're like, so how's, how's the level of agreement at your church? I was like, listen, if we were like this uber-liberal church that were like, was as progressive as the day is long, we'd all be on the same page, we'd all be making the same decisions, we'd all think the same things. And if we were like an uber-fundamentalist church that was like, we hate the government, everything they say, like, and we just, like, everybody was a Republican, and like, we would all agree that masks were stupid and couldn't stop any—like, but I was like, the problem is, is that— my church isn't like that. Like, we have all these people with all these different ideas, like, all in the same thing, and they all think different stuff, and they send me mutually exclusive emails about what we must do, and it's, it's really hard to lead people that diverse. But I said, but what I will tell you about the church I lead is, is that they still do a better job of hanging together as a clump than most churches who can find the will to fight about the azaleas when they're all Republicans or Democrats. And so it's been really—it's really great. I love leading this church. It is hard at moments, um, but most people, even when they disagree vehemently, they're very reasonable. I was in a meeting that was about thousands and thousands of dollars, and where at least four people out of five had done something wrong to help create the problem, okay, including me. And there was a lot of very serious back and forth, but it was—every word was principled. Every word was principled. And we figured it out, and we solved the problem, and we turned the thing around, and we got it going in the right direction. It took two weeks, but it happened—or three weeks, or four, I can't remember, but it happened. Does that make sense? Okay. We spent kind of a lot of time on the first of the three things we're going to talk about. So let's quickly move on to the next one. The second is to serve others. I'm not going to say much about this.
And that is that um, we need to serve others according to our true needs, and that is fundamental to Christian faith. That is, first of all, you have to be with each other in fellowship or deep, meaningful community. You have to be in relationship and present with each other, okay? One of the things that is controversial right now in Corona land is to what extent can we just not be with each other because there are certain health risks to being with each other, okay? That, that tension is meaningful, okay? Um, one of the things that human beings are very bad at we're, our, our, our minds are structured badly for this, right? Our minds are structured beautifully, but we're really bad at this. When one side of an equation is very concentrated and the other side of the equation is very diffuse. So, for example, um, if, you know, the city of Madison bought you lunch at your favorite restaurant every week, you would get your favorite lunch. And if the expense of that was dispersed throughout all the people of Dane County— everybody would pay less than a penny, right? So you might be a very strong advocate for free lunch for you, and nobody else would pay any attention to the quarter of a penny that they would pay weekly, and you would get a very concentrated benefit, and they would be subjected to a very diffuse cost, right? Anytime where that's the dynamic, people are like, let's have the thing, the free lunch, right? In a situation like this, where everybody knows what the concentrated cost is, you get coronavirus. That's a concentrated cost. And it could make you sick, and in some cases, it could kill you. Okay? That's—now, here's the thing. How do you relate that to all the diffuse ec expectations and things that happen when you stop or mess with all those things to focus on the concentrated benefit you're seeking, which is to lessen the spread of disease, right? And the answer is, we're just not very good at that as people, especially as a voting public, as a, as a mob, as a city. We're terrible at this. And so one of the things that's sacrificed in that is gathering, human gathering, right? And yet, human gathering is one of those fundamentally human, therapeutic, psychologically necessary, and humanly necessary things people do. Angry extroverts notwithstanding, right? Like, it's—so, it's for example— Everybody I know who has any kind of mental health problem is struggling much more than they ever have in my ministry. We've had one death by suicide in our church during coronavirus. We have had um, a number of people. Um, I, I read something this week. Okay, I don't want to exaggerate it. What was it? It was, it was some astounding number of American males under 35 that had suicidal thoughts that were at least somewhat serious in the past six months. Um, and it was high. It was like—I want to say it was in the 30-somethings or higher percent. It was a lot, right? Um, one of the things that people don't understand about therapy is that counselors only get to talk with people for like an hour every week or every other week or something like that. That you can't change somebody's life like that very easily, especially if they have very dis dysfunctional problems. What needs to happen is they need to be in a community that's semi-functional. Well, what happens when you can't be with anyone, right? People who have been working through traumas, through relationships and gatherings and utilizing small groups and friendships to do so— None of that is happening, and there are extremely dire consequences for that that are diffuse among the lives of everybody. Like, almost everyone I talk to talks about a sense of they just feel tired. They feel a malaise. They feel personally diminished. They feel—and it is, it is in large part because we have chosen—that is, our leaders have chosen to separate us for a concentrated benefit that is a real benefit— but there are incalculable, diffuse costs, and among them is fellowship. Now, there's two options here. One is to disobey and do whatever we want, right? Which is tempting. 
The other is to do the other things as best we can while doing what we must in the other things. Here's the problem with that option. It's harder. It's harder. And we're feeling less energetic. And so, what that means is that if we're going to try to get this concentrated benefit, or at least as Christians obey the government to the extent to which Scripture commands us, even if we think it's dumb, yet we recognize the incredible importance of these other things like fellowship, specifically religious fellowship that includes prayer, support along the lines of what we believe together doctrinally, and worshiping God, which nothing else offers but church. Then we have to find a way to do that, and what that's going to take is us to exert ourselves and to take the relative risks necessary relative to conscience, your health, and what can be done in order to accomplish that. Does that make sense? There are some folks that are just not careful, and there are some folks that are careful beyond science, okay? And they all are part of this church, and I love you all, and everybody else should too, all right? But listen, standing outside for a worship night where you're no closer than 20 feet from everyone, and you got the like upwind side of it, there is zero risk in that. But there is benefit, right? Being part of a small group outside where everybody wears masks. There is—the the, the risk there is infinitesimal, okay? There are things that can be done to massively mitigate the risk of this disease and yet not fall into the trap. I'm not saying that it is a ploy of our government to keep us all apart or to destroy churches. I'm not saying that. But I am saying this. I will say this. Devils will use every opportunity, even a wedding, to get something bad accomplished. And the, and the flesh, the, the sinful nature within inside of us, will also use any situation to get the worst out of it. <laughs> but the work of the Spirit in us, keeping in step with the Spirit, trusting Christ to do the best we can, the good that's right in front of us, is to make the most of whatever we can. You guys, this isn't even really hard. There's this video that I love on the internets, and um, it's called—it's in this channel called Lutheran Satire called— the martyrs read Joel Olstein quotes. Okay? Now, listen. I, I am not—I am not a Joel Olstein hater. Like, I would not preach like him, and there are things—I have concerns about his ministry model, okay? But, like, I'm not one of these people who's like, oh, he's like a—whatever. Okay? He—but he does the kind of, like, positive thinking thing, and when you take, like—you take, like, paintings of, like, St. Sebastian being shot with arrows, and he says something like, if you think well about your life, your life will go as well as you think. Or like, you know, some say, like, it just feels wrong, you know? And if you took those and you, and you were like, St. Sebastian's getting shot by arrows, and you're like, I can't go to a small group where I'll have to wear my mask if we have to go indoors, right? Or I can't think of a good one for like people who are too careful right now. Um, but there's hilarious ones, I assure you, if I had some time to think about it. But you know what I'm saying? Like, it— like, there, there are people being murdered for their faith in Nigeria. Okay, there are people who are being dragged to concentration camps for their faith in China. Like, it, like it's bad, you guys, right? If, like, we can do this. All right, we can, we can do it. We can, we can weather the coronavirus. Do you understand? But listen, it is an excuse. It is, a, it is an environment that will passively and through a malaise weaken you, separate us cool down the fire, 
increase the dysfunctions, work the, the edges, the details. It's like, it's like somebody who nags somebody else and just kind of pokes and pokes and pokes and wears them down, right? And you, you, you need to understand what's happening and we need to exert ourselves. Do you understand? Now, that's true in terms of the decisions leaders have to make. It's also true in our fellowship with each other. We need to serve each other based on what each other needs. That starts with fellowship, but it also includes giving to each person what they need. So what he says in this passage is he says, he says, listen, warn the idle. Encourage the timid. Help the weak, right? And be patient with everyone. Now that's, that's actually a pretty good diagnostic for doing ministry with people, right? What's the problem? You're, you're trying to help somebody spiritually. What's the problem? Are they idle? Are they just not doing it? Are they, are they presumptuous? They're like, well, things will be fine. It doesn't really matter. Blah, 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 blah. Excuses. Is that, is that what it is? Well, then they might need to be warned. Listen, if you—I I know where this road goes. Listen, if, if you're a believer, there should be fruit of that faith. And Jesus specifically commands you about these things. You need to do them. One of the things I'm saying right now, right, when I say, exert, listen, Christian, exert yourself right now. Exert yourself positively rather than slide back passively. At this moment, the malaise, don't let the malaise take you. Don't let the, like, blues turn to depressions, turn to clinical depressions. Like, don't. Go for the walk. Be with the person. Talk to the people. Do the life-affirming things, the little things. Exert yourself, or you will grow weaker. Right? Why am I doing that? Because I believe that in the church and in the city, many people are responding to Corona land stuff, the Rona with idleness. That's what I think. I think we are responding to this with idleness. But when things are worse, at any level we have to exert ourselves to meet the challenge so it doesn't push us over. But some people are afraid, and they're timid. They've lost heart. There is a cowardice. And what you do to those people is not warn them. <laughs> you encourage them. You inspire them. You tell them what's good. You, 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 you do things that will strengthen them so that they can use the strength they already have to do what they already know they should. Right? If a person is, is, is fearful, then you encourage them. If a person is weak, then you help them. All through scripture, we're told over and over again that we, our character is shown most fully in a few things, like how we talk, but one of the things that is most clear is how we help weak people. That, that is one of the most fundamental descriptors and proofs of the kind of person you really are. If somebody's weak, they need help for whatever reason. Will you help them? Or do you have some other thing you want to do? Right? And when people are weak, when we see people, they, they just, they can't bear their own load. Right? Our response there is not to warn them. And in some cases, it's not even to encourage them. Sometimes you actually have to bear some of the load. And when we find people among us who are weak and they can't bear their own load, you step in and you bear some of the load. You don't just say words. Right? And then lastly, if the problem with the person is that they're a human— Right? Like if, you, if you're dealing with somebody, you're wondering what this person needs, and they're a human, right? Then one of the things they're going to need is patience. Because we are selfish, bullheaded, obstinate, 
unperceptive, foolish, <laughs> blind, we can, we can call you the kettle and not know where the pot kind of creatures. And listen, if you, if you want to make any headway with us, you're going to have to be patient. You've got to be patient whether you're warning some, the idle or whether you're encouraging the timid or whether you are helping the weak. You're, you're going to have to be patient. It's not going to change overnight. Everybody needs patience. And these are the things we owe each other. Look, you owe me warning when I'm idle. And you owe me encouragement when I'm scared. And you owe me help when I'm weak. And you owe me patience in Christ together in the holy fellowship of the saints. We owe it to each other. And Paul says, listen to the Thessalonians, when your livelihoods are being destroyed and you're being persecuted and this city hates your faith, which was the, what they were dealing with Thessalonica, he says, you owe this to each other. You need each other. Serve each other in these ways. You need to do this. And in this moment for us, and in every moment for the church, at all moments, we owe these things to each other. And we have to do these things for each other to become what we can be in Christ. This is not a singular we, we can believe in individuality and individual responsibility without believing in an individualism that doesn't recognize what we owe each other and how we're connected to each other. Okay, I'm going to do the last one really quick, which is that we need to deliver consistently on the fundamentals of godliness. Right? He says, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. Always strive to do what's good for each other and for everyone else. Technically, the, the word there is to show kindness, to pursue or seek kindness. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. I want you to notice two things. The first is he's like, listen, you need to do these things. And then he states them absolutely and categorically, right? He says, he says, you, you make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. Right? Forgiveness, offering forgiveness and not taking revenge is a fundamental and first principle in individual Christian behavior. Right? It is one of the, there's only two things in the New Testament where Jesus says, if you don't do this, you are going to hell. You aren't saved. You don't believe in me. Your faith is false. There's only two things. One is to judge with a standard you will not judge yourself with, Matthew 7. And the other is to refuse to forgive. See how those both explicitly deal with the doctrine of judgment and salvation, right? And so they're bound up in the doctrine of judgment and salvation and how Jesus saves us, right? And he explicitly says twice, listen, those two things, right? You must forgive, right? And then you must be kind. The word literally means, it, it says, to pursue kindness with haste is what it literally says in Greek. I, this translation is not very good in this verse. To pursue kindness with haste. Um, kindness, here's the definition of kindness. The disposition of love towards people recognizing that everyone lives under the curse. The disposition of love towards people recognizing that everyone lives under the curse. Right? Everybody is fighting a battle. Nobody's life if you think somebody's life is great, it's not. Everybody is affected by the curse somehow. And you'll look in other people's lives for the pain that you're suffering, and you see it absent in their life, at least from your 
vantage point, and you'll think that their life is great, and they really ought to be able to do more and help more and act more, because their life is good and your life is harder. They have more money than you, right? They're married and you're single. They're single and you're married, right? Their kids look like they're behaving and yours aren't. They have more education, but you didn't have that opportunity. You're an immigrant. They're not. You name it. Whatever it is. They're healthy. You're not healthy. They're tall. Whatever. Right? And, and you'll see that one thing, but here's the problem. There are a million things in every person's life, and you are oblivious to most of them. And the curse touches us in thousands of different ways, and everybody has gut checks they have to make every single day to either become the kind of person Jesus is drawing them to be, or fall back into the things that they were habitually logged into. Like, everybody's— is, trying to find the energy and trying to find the courage and trying to figure out how to get there and, and, and people need help and they, and they don't need you kicking them, right? And so like looking for opportunities to show a kindness to someone that is lusting for and rushing to it is fundamental to the Christian attitude and should bring joy, right? Like I was out fishing with Jude yesterday. Um, He's turning 13 today. He turned 13 today, and he wanted to go fishing for a whole day from before light to after dark. And so I took him out in the boat, and we were fishing in Lake Wabisa, and I see this like 24-foot ski boat paddling its way towards us, like back towards the other side of the lake. And I'm like, now listen, I've been a pastor my whole life. I'm not rich by boating standards. And so I—but I've always loved the water. And so I have never had a boat that runs all the time. And, right, you guys know—anybody who owns a boat that doesn't have lots of money knows what I mean. And, and so I feel that. Like when I see somebody and their boat isn't running, I'm like, that, that could be me. That's been me. Like I, like I feel it. I know it. And so I, I buzzed over there. I was like, hey, you guys, want to ride? And they were like, you would do that? And they were like, God bless America. I was like, well, maybe just God bless God, but great, yeah. Um, and so, like, I told them, because, now, I love America, but I, I didn't do it because I was an American. You understand what I'm saying? I did it because I love Jesus, and I, right, okay. So I told them back to the dock, and we, you know, blah, 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 we drive away, and, and, um, and it felt great to help somebody, partly because it feels great to be the hero, whatever, but it also felt great because I've been there. I know what that feels like, and it could be me tomorrow right? And when you have the attitude that we're all hit with the curse, like it, anything could be you tomorrow, right? To a certain extent. Like it changes your attitude if you look at other people that way. We all want to believe that, you know, we're trying really hard and all of our failures can be soothed by the fact that people who seem to be doing it better had more resources and that's the only reason why they seem to be winning. That attitude gets us nowhere. It breaks us apart from each other. It makes us suspicious of other people. And it doesn't allow us to draw towards each other in real fellowship and love. And it murders the motivation of kindness in our hearts. That and the ethic of thankfulness, be thankful in everything. Those two things, if we got them right, if we looked at other people with kindness, and we were overflowing with disciplined thankfulness at every moment, we wouldn't find it hard to be joyful always. And we would realize that we would need to pray continually. Now, I'm, I'm over time, so I'm not going to—I would love to say more about that, but here's, here's what I want to say. In this moment, in Christ, remember, you don't just have to do these things if you're a believer in Jesus because you believed in Jesus and he told you to. That's not all in Christ means. In Christ means, and with all the resources given by Christ to you. 
right? He has given you unsearchable riches in his promises and in his power in the Spirit and in his regeneration of your humanity and in his church and in the people he's brought that you could connect with and in the spiritual leaders that he's given you, hopefully, and in all these other ways and in Scripture revealed and in the opportunity for worship and the resources that he brings to you through prayer and all those kinds of things. There are massive gifts in Christ for us to exert ourselves in gracious striving towards these things by faith because he has already approved of you in Christ. And he is with you in Christ and he is empowering you through Christ. And as you come in the pursuit of godliness more in taste toward the things that are truly beautiful, what is part of his good, pleasing, and perfect will, the more you are pleased by the good, the easier it becomes, even when it's very difficult. Because even when you're suffering to do the good, you're still pleased by it. We're going to have a couple minutes to exert ourselves in worship again, and then I'll be answering some questions. So if you have questions from the sermon, there's a lot I did not cover. Please ask them. Um, we're going to have a podcast later in the week where I'll go over in a lot of this stuff in more detail. So if you want to hear more about some of these pieces, they'll be in that. But if you take nothing away, I want, oh, take away these two things. One is, this is a moment to exert ourselves as human beings and in our faith in Christ. Not to allow the malaise of this period right now to weaken us and dampen our spirits. Because listen, these next three months— we need to charge ourselves up to survive the winter emotionally and spiritually. Do you understand? There's going to be more separation. It's going to be more difficult for us in the wintertime. And these next three months where we still can be outside some and see each other outside and utilize the outdoors and things like that for fellowship, we need to use these months to charge ourselves. You need to put fight wood on the fire to burn through the winter emotionally because it's going to get harder, not easier, more li most likely. Do you understand? And so this is a moment to exert ourselves. Now listen, when you do it, do it in Christ. Do it with him. Do it with his people. Do it in his name. Do it on the basis of what he teaches and the encouragement he gives. Don't just grit your teeth and try to move. Do you understand? You don't— this is not legalism. I'm not encouraging you to a new moralism. Or I'm not encouraging you to like try hard and then be mad at yourself. What I'm saying is, is saying, be in Christ. Learn to walk with the Spirit. Move with others and go in that direction and utilize his resources and you will find yourself moving well and you will overcome this moment and become more of an overcomer in whatever the next moment is. And friends, we may get back to normal until the next time it's not normal. But we can have joy always. God, as we give ourselves in these next moments to singing your praise, to enjoying the truths about you that ground us, that are most the most fundamental anchor to our souls, we pray that you would help us to open our hearts in gracious acceptance of the truth. And we pray that you would fuel us and charge us and encourage us and strengthen us with the truth. I pray for anybody who's listening who doesn't, doesn't know what that feels like or what that means in our in life because they don't know Jesus yet. I pray that you would open their hearts to you, and I pray that they would be able to call out to you and ask you to enter their lives, to offer you repentance from their sins, and to invite you 
to forgive and to change them. And I pray that you would be working now, Holy Spirit, on them. I pray that they would feel that conviction, that, that sense of the truth, and that drawing towards you. And I pray that you'd help them in these moments respond to it. Pray in Jesus' name.